Let us indeed. All right, so, uh, hello, internet people. Long time no see. Uh, welcome back to the Super Science Happy Hour with Matt and Matt. I am Matt Johnson. I'm Matt Krauss. And, uh, yeah, it's been a long time. It's been nearly as long since our last podcast as the duration of our last podcast. So, hopefully everyone's almost done with that one by now. <laughs> That leads me into a good rant, actually, which was Go just ahead. stolen by the XKCD guy. Uh, what was it? Because I don't think I've capped up with that one. Oh, well, just the sort of... This has been bugging me more and more, uh, but uh, Randall, Mon- Russell, Randall Monroe? Russell Monroe. Randall, Randall Monroe. Rand- Randall Monroe of XKCD had a comic mocking it, which is how every pop science article has these absolutely terrible comparisons, right? Like, some yeah. scientists have made a computer that's as smart as a two-year-old dog, or like... Oh, Yeah. Um, I don't know. They're good for size, good for sizes and stuff. But uh, I was actually reading this news article about uh, Dick Cheney's daughter. Yeah, uh, not not the lesbian one, the crazy conservative one. Who's oh, the, yes, the one that doesn't like the gay marriage of the other one. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Awkward. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so the article is about hopefully, her. Running... Hopefully, nobody gets shot in the face over that, because <laughs> I hear that runs in the family. <laughs> yeah, so there's an article about her. So this isn't. You know, pop science, but it's the same terrible comparisons. So uh, she's running for Senate in uh, Wyoming. Okay. And she got in trouble for... Uh, so the other person in Wyoming has to vote for her for to be elected, basically. Well, pretty much. Yeah. But, but So this article was like, she's never going to win because she registered for a fishing license illegally, and it's a big deal in Wyoming. Oh, I saw that. Did you see the terrible comparison in the article? No, I didn't see that. So the article said, uh, Wyoming is a state that takes its fishing seriously. And, you know, 40% of people have fishing licenses, and they spend uh, a cumulative, like, 5.3 million days a year fishing. And you're like, wow, that sounds like a lot. Yeah. But I thought about it for a minute, and I was like, huh, I wonder if that is a lot. So I Googled it. I Googled, like, the population of Wyoming, you know, you yeah. can grind through the factor label, whatever. And that means that if, if you live in Wyoming and you have a fishing license, you spend, on average, three or four days a year fishing. So, like, you know, yeah. a weekend and a half. Well, yeah, I mean, so it's not that much. Yeah, it's not much at all. I mean, it's a lot when you think about, like, oh, well, you know, if all of those people work together building, like, houses for the homeless instead of fishing, that would, yes, that many man hours would, like, build a lot of houses for the homeless. But, yes, it's not that much. But it's not like it's a state of, like, fishing-crazed lunatics. No. Well, I think it, I mean, that is still a lot of fishing on average because, you know, I have spent zero days fishing in the last five years, you know. No, 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 but that's of the people who have a fishing license. Oh, okay. So I, w- I would totally believe that everyone who has a fishing license spends at least one weekend a year going fishing. Like, that's not, that's not crazy. What did you say, uh, what percentage of Wyoming has a fishing license? Uh, 40%, which is a lot. Okay. That is, that is awfully high, because, I mean, isn't Wyoming, isn't the population down below the population that you actually need to apply for statehood now. I believe I have read that before. Oh, really? Yeah, it's like 500,000 people or something. Yeah. Let me just see. Anyways, I wanted to rant about that for a couple days. Wyoming's population right now is uh, 500 and something thousand. And let's see. How do you... Let's see. Application. I don't think it's the smallest state, though. I think population-wise. Oh, uh, maybe it's... No. What about, like, South Dakota? Um... Or North Dakota for. I'm sure there's a Wikipedia list of U.S. states by population. Yes, there Racing is. Racing you to it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you look at that. I'll look at the uh, requirements for statehood because it's been a while since I took AP history. Oh, you're right. Wyoming is the least populated. Yeah. 
Yeah, even despite the fact that it's much bigger than something like Rhode Island or whatever. Yeah, Rhode Island is actually uh, 43rd of the 50 states. Yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of uh, yeah the Dakotas are, are right down there in low population. And Alaska, I wouldn't have realized. Yeah, well, Alaska's full of a lot of nothing. Yeah, it's true. But, I mean, it is very large by area. So, you know, that also means that, obviously, I think, obviously, that Alaska must be the least populous per cat or per like square mile because um, it's so much bigger than everything else oh yeah i mean it's like a third the size of the u.s yeah it has uh 1.26 people per square mile which is 50th yeah that's that's not very much but wyoming is next uh next least anyways okay yeah, uh, this is probably not going in, I guess, because it's a little bit yeah. of a digression. I can't find the actual re- – apparently the original requirement for statehood was only 60,000 people. So if that has not changed, um, then actually Wyoming is safe for now for getting its uh, state statehood revoked. But uh, I'll look that up. It's not Pluto. <laughs> well, yes. And I think it's still okay. But, I mean, it is sort of funny, like, how how few people actually live there. Anyway, but we should not get – too digressy. We could take that whole rant out, actually. Yes, because that wasn't that interesting. Okay, so I have a bunch of cool things to talk about. As do you, I believe. Yes, we have a crap load of things to talk about. So hopefully, so maybe we should tell the people, I mean, I have a, I'm actually downloading our latest download statistics right now, so I can't tell you exactly what they are. But, um, you know, I think people, judging on reactions and, uh, you know, general statistics and such, I think... Although people love Laurie Skelly, our guest for the last episode, uh, I think we've been getting a bit too long in recent episodes, particularly that one. That's not what she said. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yes, we're going to try to make it a little bit shorter and denser. And, uh, you know, if we start to wander too long, we may split up conversations into multiple episodes that are more that than That is what she two. said. <laughs> yes. So that's our goal. So we're going to try to make all of the podcast a little bit more like the lightning rounds have been. Because the lightning rounds have not even been that lightning, so we're going to shoot for that. Do we do we want to turn on uh, my egg timer, or do you think we'll be able to... Uh... I have an egg timer here on my iPad. Okay, cool. And I also have a, a good one that links like three or four things that have been on our backlog. Okay, sure. So we have we have a, an amazing backlog of, of great stuff, so maybe we'll just try to like motor through that today. No, no, let's go. Let's give everything its, its due time. Well... But this is awesome, and I just learned about it today, so I'm overly excited about it. Okay, go for it. All right. So what would, I, what would you say if I told you that we found a two-billion-year-old nuclear reactor? I would say, have you looked up into the sky recently? Well, that's older than two billion years, but... Oh, I, I, on Earth. And you're not referring to the molten core of said Earth? No, actually, there's about 12 of them. Uh, then I would say you are a crazy man, sir. Uh, it appears to be a real <laughs> thing. So okay. if... If any of our listeners work for the Discovery Channel, I will pause for a moment so you can change your pants and call the ancient aliens guy. But uh, no, (laughs) there are apparently these natural nuclear reactors. So I guess what happens is that you have a vein of, like, rich uranium ore. Yeah. And uh, so it's it's there, you know, in the the dirt. And under the right conditions, it can turn into, like, sort of a self-sustaining little nuclear reactor. Actually, not little. That's only mildly terrifying, I guess. Well, well, let me tell you how it was discovered, because that was much more terrifying. Okay. Okay, so this is all happened in Gabon. Uh, uh, Gabon? Gabon, I think. Uh, Gabon, in, I think, yeah. Uh, in Africa. So there's a 
there was a large uranium mining operation there. And okay. since, you know, uranium is kind of dangerous, they're, they're very careful about what they take out of the earth and, uh, and keeping, keeping track of where the uranium goes. Cause you know, it's not like a post-it note where you can take home from the office. So they, right. they audit the ore that comes up to make sure that, you know, they're getting good stuff. And that, so during one of these audits, they're trying to get, I think, uranium hexafluoride uh, okay. out of the ore. And you get, you normally get a 0.72% uranium hexafluoride per, like, you know, blob of dirt. That's the percent. Okay, that's the amount of uranium in the in the ore is, like, a little less than 1%. Yep. Okay. And so they audit it. They, like, audit the ore to make sure that that's what's coming out and no one is, like, taking home uranium on the side. Right. What was the thing I, I was reading about Japanese miners recently? I don't know. I think... I think it was just something about how I think this was more in like gold or jewel mines or something used to check their butts for smuggled uh, jewels. But that's well, so that's sort of where we're going here. Hopefully no one's smuggling the uranium in their bum because um, I don't want to see the mutations that result. Yeah. This is, oh, sorry. So I, what I said was uh, not quite correct. So it's 0.72 like U235, uh, like the, you know, sort of active ingredient nuclear bombs. Okay. Of that particular. Yeah. Isotope. So, but that's the, yeah, and that's the isotope you want if you're going to make a nuclear bomb. Right. Hello to our new NSA listeners. <laughs> yes, exactly. Let's see how many watchwords we can get. Uh, I believe I believe before we started the podcast proper, we already had several references. To, well, we won't even get into it. <laughs> <laughs> so so anyway, uh, this, was a, this was a French operation. And yep. one day they noticed that their yield of uh, U-235 was down. It was 0.7%. So I said 0.72, it was 0.717, so it's three thousandths of a percent off. Okay. But apparently that was a like statistically significant deviation for this batch. And the batches are really big, right? They take out tons of ore. Right. So they figured there was about 200 kilograms of U-325 uh, missing. 235, yeah. Yeah, so that's enough for like a lot of bombs. Uh, yep. Or to send uh, Marty McFly back in time. Oh, that was plutonium. But... That was plutonium. Yeah. Oh, we'll get to that too. Okay. So they noticed that, you know, about 200 kilograms of uranium had, of, of bomb, you know, isotope uranium had suddenly right, gone right. missing. And, it, you know, it doesn't say this in the, the paper I read, but I presume uh, various people lost their shit and there was lots of uh, butt searching yes. and other searching to see where, you know, all this had gone. And it, yeah. so they went down and they, they took like some samples from the mine, like under, you know, under guard where there's lots of people watching. So there's no, no hanky panky. Yep. And they found veins with even less U-235. Interesting. So it turns out that you can have, under the exact right conditions, you can have this sort of self-sustaining nuclear reactor. And so you have to have a big uh, vein of uranium, and it has to be, like, so it has to be long enough that, like, uh, it has to be at least as long as, like, one neutron before it, you know, decays into something else. Right. So it has to be, like, a couple meters long. Okay. Uh, It has to be rich in... Uranium. Yep. And it has to have something to act as sort of a neutron modulator, right? So normally neutrons go super fast, and they don't sort of have enough opportunity to interact with stuff. Right. Uh, so in a nuclear reactor, we do all sorts of weird hanky-panky to slow the neutrons down so they react with, with other neutrons, and you get a nice sustaining reaction. Yep. Except as it turns out, so, you know, you can use all sorts of fancy custom-made ceramics and stuff. We can also use yep. water, which, uh, as it turns out, you know, sometimes shows up in rocks. I, yes, I've, I've heard that. Yeah, so this happened at least, I think, 12 times 
in the world. How do they? How are they saying that this? How do they know that this has happened twelve times? Oh, uh, because the isotope yields are messed up, and because you also get all these uh, like the byproducts, right? So okay. the sometimes a neutron slams into like something, and it makes a weird isotope that doesn't naturally right, occur. That wouldn't exist unless there had been a self-sustaining fission reaction. Yep. Really. Yeah, isn't that cool? Yeah, so you get that like cool. uh, you get xenon, and you get a uh, I forget what the other thing was, but you get you get a couple different uh, isotopes that are sort of not naturally occurring. But it's crazy. Yeah. So this this one, the one where it was first discovered, uh, put out a hundred kilowatts, which is you know not like a big power plant, but that yeah. that run like you know many houses for a while. Yeah. So. Uh... So what happened, I guess, was that the water would, like, boil off. Uh, so the water would percolate into the rocks. It would slow down the neutrons. It would get this reaction going. And then, of course, it gets really hot, so the water boils off. Reaction stops. Everything cools down a little bit. Right. Water comes back down. And, yeah, and repeat. So it's like its own, uh, whatever whatever you would call it, like cooling uh, tower slash, uh, you know, kind of safety shutoff feature at the same time. Yep. Yeah, so you get xenon, and you get a couple of other weird elements. Yeah. So, now that I've alarmed you, uh, yep. the, the one nice thing is that this can't happen anymore, right? So the U-235 uh, has some half-life, and it's it's long, but... Uh, oh, so you're saying that they, by analysis, they figured out that this had happened in the past, but it was not still actively going on at the time they discovered it. No, it can no longer happen, which is kind of... Well, relieving and also kind of sad. I guess the happening of that, like, would have decreased the amount of U-235 left enough that it would no longer happen. Yeah. Oh, oh so, the, yeah, exactly. So you need, like, 3% of U-235, and, you know, now you're down to, like, a half. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Um, so this would have been, you said, 2 billion years ago that this uh, this was actively happening? Well, yeah, but it ran for, like, a very, very long time, like 300 million years or something. Okay. Hmm. That's cool. Yep. I have no more opinion to offer on that, except that it's cool. So it ties into one of your previous uh, lightning round things that we never actually got to, which is uh, the physical laws changing over time. Oh, yeah. I still want to revisit that, because there are all kinds of crazy theories uh, out... Well, they're not that crazy. It's just sort of, like, difficult to substantiate, but... Yeah, yeah, theories that look into explaining, like, the Big Bang and so forth by virtue of, like, universal constants actually not being constant and so forth. Yeah, so this is actually used to do that, too, right? Because uh, sort of the yield you get from the fission, or from the, you know, neutron slamming into a, a nucleus, right, uh, varies with, with alpha, which is, I think, the... Is it the fine structure constant? I can never remember which one is which. Um... I think that is that the one that's one over one thirty seven for no good reason. Yeah, the one that controls the speed of light. Yeah, I think that could be it. Yeah, alpha is the fine structure constant. Yeah, so it's a fine structure. So uh, this was initially evidence against it. So they're like, you know, look, the yield is exactly what you'd get now, as it was two billion years ago, because you can, you know, you can take some U two thirty five, you can let it bombard things, and you can see what happens. Yeah. Uh, but a more careful analysis. More recently suggests that it might actually have varied. Mm. Um, but they're still sort of puzzling over that as far as I can tell. Yeah. Well, I imagine it's a little hard to uh, 
I mean, that's a lot of deduction from something that's, you know, quite well degraded from something that happened a couple billion years ago, so. Well, there's, there's, oh, I have two more cool facts about this. Okay. There's apparently one that may be going on Mars now. Oh, really? Okay. Yes, we should go check it out. Uh, I'll get in my spaceship right now. Just as an aside for the uh, non-science inclined, well, if you're not science inclined, I guess you're not listening to this, but if you're not like familiar with this already, um, the fine structure structure constant is uh, is an interesting number. I mean, um, there's a good bit in in the book, The God Particle, that I recommended, I think in the first episode, talking about how this is one of the weirdest numbers in all of existence. Because basically it's um, apparently the, what is this, the um, one recommended value of it well, it's a very complicated number, but it's uh, it's basically 1 over 137 and change. 137.035999074 or thereabouts. But a weird thing about it is that it has no units, right? So most physical constants, like the speed of light, like the speed of light is, you know, measured in miles per second or kilometers per second or whatever. But most, you know what I mean? Like, most things have units, right? So, like, you can say the speed of light is constant, but, like, that's just in whatever yeah. units you're using to measure it, right? But, you know, there's things like pi, for example, you know, is a universal constant. But it doesn't have any units, right? It's a ratio of two things measured in meters or whatever, like, you know, the radius of the circle's diameter to its uh, circumference. But, you know, when you divide them out, there are no units left. It's just a pure number. And the weird thing, right, is that, like, in most physics equations... The physical constants are either things like the speed of light, which has units associated with it, so the numbers are kind of arbitrary, or there are things like 2 and 3 and pi and e that are either like small integers or, uh, you know, like these like mathematically, mathematical constants. Yeah, yeah that, that may have, like pi doesn't have a particularly like, you know, it's kind of random looking number, right? It's 3.14, blah, 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 but... But it has an interpretation, I guess, right? It has an interpretation, and it comes up everywhere, right? And the same thing with, like, E. You know, E has, like, falls out of, you know, pure number theory and, and mathematical the- theorems and so forth. But this fine structure constant is this pure number, 1 over 137, that just falls out of physics equations, but no one seems to know why it's this number that it is, right? And it's sort of, it's not this nice number, like you know, a multiple of pi or, you know, the number three or something like that. So uh, anyway, there's a good bit in the God particle about how, you know, it doesn't seem to have any real like mystical significance, but uh, it's one of these things that like is sort of perplexing as to why it is, why this, it's just weird how, I guess, how this pure number falls out of these equations that uh, is not dependent on any units or anything. And it's controlling, you know, many of the uh, equations of quantum physics. So it's just like a fudge factor. Well, it's not a fudge factor, but you know what I mean, like... But it is, right? I mean, it's like... It's it's God's, like... Uh, it's a unitless, like, random number. Yeah, I mean, it is, you know, fairly fundamental to all the equations that hold the universe... Well, not all. I, I'm speaking out of my butt a bit, because I'm, I'm not, like... I can't solve the uh, wave equation right here in front of you, or even really make sense of it. But, yeah, I mean, it's... Um, you know, most of these universal constants are are just quantities expressed in terms of meters and seconds and uh, kilograms and so forth. But this is just its just some number that's apparently very important to the laws of physics working the way they do. Huh. Yeah, I'm reading about now. That's it's just, Yeah, so it basically is a fudge factor. <laughs> well, I mean, in, in a sense, it's just like, it's sort of like when you're modeling something 
like in a computer model and you're like, all right, I need to find the value to like set, you know, how quickly this, like we were, when we were talking about genetic algorithms, you're like, just set, kind of say like, all right, uh, how quickly do these algorithms evolve to get like the result I want? And you just kind of like play around with it till you get it. And uh, yeah, it's, this is sort of like our universe's uh, free, free constant where you're just like, oh, it seems like, um, yeah, about a, one over 137 is the thing that doesn't make the universe implode when you when you start it running. So let's just uh, let's just call it that. Yeah. So I'm I'm looking at this. So if you were to change it by four percent, Wikipedia claims stellar fusion would not produce carbon, so we'd all not exist. Right. And if it were just slightly smaller, so if it were about 0.1 instead of 0.001, there'd be no fusion. Yeah. And so you know there'd be nothing basically. Right. Yeah, it's pretty important. Oh, that's wacky. Yeah, there's a Feynman quote. It's too long to read, but uh, well, he says it's one of the greatest damn mysteries of physics—a magic number that comes to us with no understanding by man. You might say the hand of God wrote that number, and we don't know how he pushed his pencil. Blah blah blah. It goes on in that. Yeah, I wish I could do a better Feynman voice. Yeah, I was actually because I have a, a long bit on Feynman that I want to get to either in this episode or the next one. But yeah, I was sort of practicing it to myself, and I just can't do it justice. We can we can save it for next time if you want to practice your fine-mitting in front of the mirror. Uh, I don't think it's going to get any better. It just, they all turn Australian or something in the end, and it makes no sense. <laughs> I told you my idea for a physics-themed movie, right? I want to make a movie called The Maltese Feynman. Yes. Is it, I, what is the plot of that one again, or is it just really it's just... Richard Feynman as, a, as like a film noir guy? Well, he already has the voice, so you know. Yeah, he does kind of sound like Bogart or somebody. And he was ridiculous, so I think he would have gone for it if he were not dead. Yeah. Do you want to do the Feynman bit? Because it's, uh, it's super interesting. Oh, I have one more, f- I have one more fusion thing before we okay. move on. Yep. So, th- you know, this is sort of ties into this. So, you know how physicists are a little bit crazy and, and occasionally push out, like, Archivix papers with, they're like, hey, it would be cool if this were true. I have no idea if it yeah. would be true. Yeah, they're always talking about, like, how we would build a warp drive if it were possible to build a warp drive and so forth. Yeah, so... Uh, this guy, Edward Lin. Oh, wait, no. not a, He's the one who wrote the article about this guy. This guy, he's a Dutch guy. Der Meyer, a bunch of Dutch guys, have this yeah. slightly insane theory that there was a natural fusion reactor, like way back. Okay. And it went, and unlike the sort of self-moderating ones that we know existed, this one went crazy. Yeah. Uh, sort of went critical and made a massive explosion that shot the moon into space. <laughs> uh, okay, why not? I mean, I guess, so the, you know, the composition of lunar rocks is, like, surprisingly similar to Earth. and Yeah. Well, I know there is the thought that the moon split off, you know, as a chunk of Earth, because the, um, our moon is very weird, right? It's no moon, it's a battle. Right, it's not like a captured rock that came from somewhere else. Yeah, and it's it's much my my well. So most of my understanding of this comes from um, you've read Isaac Asimov's Foundation novels, right? No, of course. This is a so. <laughs> you should all read them, by the way. They're awesome. Well, I was just going to say um, this is uh, going very quickly down the tree, but um, you know I like to steal features from other podcasts, and uh, the Paul and Storm podcast, which is uh, the podcast of a musical comedy duo that uh, we like. When they podcast, they often have a feature called Paul and Storm Recommend, where they just recommend some crap. And uh, we have unofficially done that ourselves a few times. So Matt and Matt recommend the Foundation novels by Isaac Asimov. 
I'll put those in the show notes, and you can uh, buy them via our Amazon affiliate link if you like. And if you live near one of us, or at least near me, I think I have them. You could even borrow them. Yeah, I have I have many copies of them, but they're nowhere super accessible. But have you you've read all of them? Not just like so the original three were like the classics that were published in like the 40s. And then around the 80s or 90s, right before he died, Isaac Asimov wrote four more novels that were like sequels and prequels to the original three. Uh, have you read all those? I don't know. Okay. Well, anyway, one of the... Um... I definitely read Foundation and Earth. Okay. Well, Foundation and Earth is the one in question. Okay. Perfect. So so anyway, basically, I don't think it's giving away anything major is that... Um, the Foundation novels are set in this far distant future, like many, you know, millions of years from now. And basically, you know, humanity has spread across the the galaxy, uh, you know, thanks to warp drives and so forth. But one of the things about it is it's so far in the future that apparently the original planet that humanity came from has been, it, it's basically prehistory. Like nobody knows what planet everyone came from. It's just as long as any records indicate you know, we've all been all over the galaxy. Um, so anyway, Foundation and Earth is about searching for this mystical planet called Earth. Oh, that's right. And the wacky moon uh, helps them find it. Yeah. So a big uh, plot point is that they were looking for a planet with a, with a giant moon that, you know, the moon is, uh, I think our moon is about a quarter of the diameter of Earth, which is apparently yeah, that's a very huge. large ratio of moon size to, to planet size. So we do have a weird sort anyway, I, I assume this is actually accurate, although I don't really know. No, I think it is. Our, our moon is enormous compared to like, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a half Earth in radius. It's a half an Earth in radius? Okay. So, yeah, anyway. It's a, so quarter, it's really... in, it's a quarter in surface area. Oh, okay, would, that's what About, it right? So, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I couldn't remember which, which it was. Oh, wait, okay, sorry, so... no, no. Uh, sorry, no, no, no. I, I screwed it up. That's Mars. Oh, okay. I, I believe our moon is about a quarter of our diameter, and so that would make it like a 64th of our volume and mass and so forth. But, uh, you know, anyway, the point is that most moons... Yeah, it's point, point 0.27. You're, you're dead on. Okay, yeah. So, uh, you know, most moons are like pretty tiny compared... If you look at like the moons of Saturn or something like that, or that, well, like Saturn's got rings, I guess, but the uh, moons of Jupiter and so forth. Well, Saturn also has moons, right? Not just rings? Yeah, yeah, Saturn has tons of moons. Okay. It has the most yeah, moons. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. It's the mooniest. <laughs> okay. Uh, clearly uh, showing how little I know about uh, astronomy. So, But you're right. Like, right? So the, one of the moons of Mars is 11 kilometers in radius. So you could, like, you could actually walk across the whole you damn could, thing. Yeah, you could literally walk it. Yeah. Except I don't think you could because I think you'd shoot off into space. <laughs> right. And, I mean, there's obviously, like, a continuum of, uh, you know, like, size down to – I mean, we have all kinds of space junk orbiting Earth, you know, like – individual rocks and things. And, you know, obviously Saturn has its rings, which are made of smaller uh, rocks and such. So I guess there's a continuum of these things. But anyway, yeah, most of them tend to be... Yeah, but I think our moon is, like, oversized for Earth. Yeah. Well, our moon is also... It's bigger than... Is it... How big is it compared to, like, Mercury? I think it was bigger than Pluto, but... Well, so it's... T so Mars is twice as big as the moon. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Mars is bitty. Yeah, it's smaller than we give it credit for. Doing really well with not getting sidetracked today. <laughs> well, our moon is the fifth largest moon in the solar system. It is the largest natural satellite of a planet in the solar system relative to the size of its primary. Okay, so there you go. Yeah. I was just wondering. So Mercury... And it's the third densest after Io and your mother. Oh, snap. 
This is, I was looking up uh, the moon on Wikipedia, and of course, I I made the overeducated fallacy is that I googled for Luna, uh, which actually led to a really complicated disambiguation page, instead of just doing Wikipedia moon. <laughs> so the let's see. So Mercury is the mean radius is of Mercury is two thousand four hundred kilometers and change. It says it in Earths right below it. Oh yeah. So that's 0.38 Earths, and the moon is, uh, 0.2, like you said, 0.27 Earths in radius. So, yeah, the moon is nearly as big as Mercury. Well, tenth of an Earth or so uh, away from being the size of Mercury. So It's pretty close. Yeah, quite big. Anyway, so we have this giant moon. And, and right, the various theories posit that that means it was formed in a different way than other moons, I believe. Yeah, because I think we're pretty confident that, like, Jupiter and Saturn just pick up rocks and sort of have them flying around. Right. Yeah. You have asteroids flying around or, or, you know, when solar systems are formed, you have all this debris flying around and the biggest chunks get formed into planets and, you know, the stuff that's like a little bit smaller gets to be moons and so forth. But yep. Yeah. I, I'm not a, we should, we should accelerate our efforts to get our physicist and astronomer and so forth, uh, pals on the episode. So if you do, one of these branches of science and are cringing right now, uh, you should come on and correct us. Or if you're like a five-year-old, because I feel like I used to know all of this. Well, exactly. Yeah, five-year-old Matt would like to come on the show and talk about dinosaurs and planets. Well, one theory. Well, the thing is that everything five-year-old you knew about dinosaurs is now wrong, right? So. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so anyway, uh, can I do my Feynman bit now? Because it's just so cool. Can I just add one awesome thing of Moon before we move on? Sure. Apparently when the Russians had things like overflying the moon, they just dumped Soviet pennants all over the place. <laughs> so they were uh, – what's the, what's the word for that when you fly over a place? Isn't there a word for that military thing where you fly over like enemy, enemy, enemy territory and like pamphlet them into submission? Oh, yeah, like psychological warfare. Yeah, like psychops. Like some, I, I feel like there's some uh, – Propaganda? Phenomenon. Uh, I thought there was some specific name for like dumping things via plane, but maybe there's not. I was thinking more of the Eddie Izzard bit. No country, no flag. <laughs> Wait, what was this? What is that from? Eddie Izzard, the, the stand-up oh. comic, has a bit about how the the Indian, the the British just sailed around and claimed people. Like, oh yeah, well, you don't have a flag. Sorry, you're ours. Yep. Okay, so let's um, so we're in fifty-three minutes already. So let's uh, try to speed round stuff. But okay, um, so talk talk about I don't know. That was my big exciting thing for the day. So I think, I mean, I have tons of cool stuff that I've stumbled upon since the last episode, that I, but a lot of it can go quickly. But the biggest one that I thought was so cool uh, was this Richard Feynman thing. Uh, so did you look at that PDF at all? I kind of said not to look at it. Uh, no, I didn't. Okay. I cool. didn't know it was even there. Should I look at it now? No, no, no. Uh, well, I'll read you some excerpts if, uh, again, this gets a bit uh, long, I suppose, but it's so cool. And I will maybe share a link to this PDF because I, uh, I think it's fair use. Is it from a book? As I have probably read it. Well, it's an excerpt from... So the way I came upon this, here's another Matt and Matt recommend. Oh, it's, I, have, I have read the book. Okay, it's the sequel to Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. It's What Do You Care What Other People Think, which was published, I think, right before Feynman died. Um, and actually... I, oh, sorry about that. I have a little reminder uh, popping up. So it's... Uh, I, I, I might have read it myself, but I read it before I did a PhD in neuroscience, which is the uh, key factor here. And there's some really cool stuff in this particular story. So um, another Matt and Matt recommend. I would I would like to recommend to a certain flavor of people, which is the podcast Hypercritical, 
I assume you've probably not heard of this one, have you? No. Okay, so it's a it's a now defunct podcast. It's by a guy named John Syracusa, who you may best know if you have stumbled upon these, because he writes like twenty page reviews of every new release of Mac OS X on Ars Technica. I don't know if you've ever come across <laughs> one of those. No, but okay, but, I have a certain picture in mind. Yeah, exactly. He's uh, he's a giant dork like us, but he is so in tune with my own sensibilities, it's ridiculous. Uh, he's a big he's a big Apple nerd, you know, a big tech geek in general, and and very good at like picking apart exactly what is right and wrong with all sectors of technology. Hence the hence the title, uh, hypercritical of his podcast. Oh God, he even looks like I imagined. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, if you're if you're one of these people that like endlessly likes to go on diatribes about like uh, various people in my life will attest to you know when I go on like a ten minute rampage about like some user interface feature of Windows or or even the Mac OS, uh, you know, and like why it's poor UI design and so forth. Uh, he goes on these kinds of things. I mean, and he'll he's he's like us in that he gets into these incredibly long form episodes. Um, I think he spent two episodes dissecting two like two hour episodes dissecting why various video game controllers were good or bad uh, and things like that. Right. And in ways that you never thought about before. So I highly recommend it if you like to overanalyze technology and so forth. Uh, But anyway, uh, he knows a lot about a lot of things, but mostly sticks to technology. But he happened to share this anecdote uh, about Richard Feynman on one episode that I never Either I had not read or I had not read since doing a PhD in neuroscience, but it was just so relevant to my stuff and so crazy that I thought I would share the story. So Feynman, of course, you know, was always doing like little experiments, just thought experiments and so forth. So um, he's talking. So the the story starts out and this is going to turn into like a a dramatic reading of this whole chapter if I'm not careful. But basically it starts out saying uh, when I was a kid growing up in Far Rockaway, I had a friend named Bernie Walker, both had, quote, labs at home. And we would do various, quote, experiments. And they were basically talking at like age 11 or 12 about what thinking is. And he says to his friend, well, thinking is just like talking to yourself inside, right? And uh, Bernie goes, oh, yeah, well, do you know what shape the the crankshaft is in a car? The kind of weird shape of a crankshaft? And Feynman goes, yeah, so what? And Bernie says, well, did you describe that in words to yourself? And he goes, oh, oh, I learned from that that thoughts can be visual as well as verbal. Which is not that big of a deal, except that, like, this is basically the cornerstone of a lot of working memory research, right? And he just kind of, like, throws this out there. That Anyway, you know, there's a whole lot of research nowadays, which is uh, tangential to my own work, that, you know, your your working memory repositories are different for verbal information versus, like, visual information, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, so this is just, you know, he throws this out at the beginning of the article. But uh, then he goes on to um, talk about there was this kind of dumb psychology paper that had come out uh, while he was in graduate school about some some psychologist that sounds like us in a way that um, knew just enough about science to be dangerous. Uh, <laughs> basically, it was talking about like how we know, you know, how time passes in the brain, how we time things. And some psychologist with a, just a little bit of chemistry knowledge has apparently had apparently come out with some paper basically that said like, that it must be the element iron that controls the human time sense because basically something about how like uh, the chemical reaction that must have the same kind of time constant as human perception of time kind of lined up to the speed at which certain iron-based reactions happen, which is total nonsense, right? But 
I mean, that's like, it would be cool if it were true. It would be cool if it were true, but like, you know, now we know plenty about the brain and, you know, plenty, yep. uh, know, know enough that that obviously is not how it works. Um, but anyway, this got Feynman thinking about how the brain times stuff. And of course, because he's a dork like us and because he's Feynman, he began obsessively counting to himself all the time and basically seeing like how consistent his time sense was. So he found out that if he counts up to 60 uh, in his head, his his mental timer goes a little bit faster than natural time. But he found out that very consistently, whenever he counted up to 60 in his head, it took about 48 seconds, plus or minus about one second. So he goes on and on about this and says, like, okay, I found out that I could count at a pretty standard rate. So then he goes on, of course, to uh, test himself in various circumstances. And he tells all these ridiculous stories. He's like, all right, so now I want to find out what actually governs this reaction. So if it's based on heart rate, he said, all right, I'm going to run up, up and down the stairs a bunch of times. And then, you know, while my heart rate's going really quick, I'll count to 60. He found out that that didn't affect it. You know, goes on about how various guys he saw, uh, you know, thought he was ridiculous for this. Uh, I do. You may remember a similar incident in principles. Uh, no, what did we do? Where I tried to burn my leg to see if it would Oh, hurt. right. <laughs> You could. Would you like to tell that story as an aside, so I can catch my breath from the Feynman story? Well, it's basically the same thing. We read a really dumb paper where uh, they used a painful stimulus of like forty-three degrees Celsius, right? Which is like a few degrees warmer than body temperature. Yeah, so it is. Uh, Human body temperature is thirty-eight, right? It's one hundred and nine degrees Fahrenheit, which is not like. Yeah. You know. Yeah, so it's ten degrees warmer than your body temperature. Right. I mean, that's basically what I think you normally set the hot water in your house to come out at about 120 degrees Fahrenheit or so at maximum. So, you know, that's yeah. not that bad. Or maybe it was 46. It was Anyway, it was, a, it was a number that did not sound excruciatingly painful. Yeah. And anyways, we had an assignment to write a paper uh, critiquing uh, several papers from this group about, you know, like what we thought yeah. of the research and what other experiments we could do. So midway through it, I decided that I didn't think the stimulus was painful enough. And so I heated a pan up to, to 43 degrees and then held it against my leg. And I tried it when it was hot. And I tried it, when, or I tried it when it was wet. I tried it when it was dry. I put it in front <laughs> of my leg. That's what I wrote my paper about. Yeah. And the professor visiting the class just to sort of facilitate the discussion was just like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and unfortunately, I worked in the same building with him for the rest of that year. And every time I passed him the stairs, I just got this withering look. that was like, So you were just that kid that like put... Put burning, burning pots on himself to, uh, but I mean, it was a good refutation. And for the record, it, yeah, it doesn't hurt. And, but you know, both my legs are still there. Right. And this, you know, this is, uh, it's an aside, but it's one of my standard diatribes is, you know, there's all this stuff that doesn't make it into the method sections of papers that, you know, influences their validity quite a bit. Right. Um, and in that case, the actual temperature did go into the method section. But, you know, if you weren't reading that paper very closely and trying it out for yourself, you might take it for granted that, you know, what they claimed was a painful stimulus was, in fact, a painful stimulus. But, you know, that could undermine the whole paper if really they didn't crank it up high enough. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I think it's also right around the limit where you start to actually get burns. I didn't know that at the time. It's hard to create a painful stimulus that does not actually injure you permanently. So I, I agree with their, you know ethics and I, mean, I see why they did it but you know yeah but yes it, it you know well this is the problem we did um you know we did some fear conditioning studies at a lab where i used to work oh at this is a great story i love this story <laughs> which one are you talking about tell your story I, i'm pretty sure it's the same one 
Well, so, I mean, the, the, the one that makes the point that I was going to make is that, you know, we were trying to fear condition people, right? By you basically, you know, give them a painful electrical shock while pairing it with various like visual stimuli. Cause this is what you do with rats, right? Is like you put them into room one and room one is just a normal room. Then you put them into room two and they get an electric shock every time they step onto the floor and the rats quickly learn that room two is a bad room. They should not go into room two. They learn to fear room two, right? So that's a very simplified version of it, but you know, it makes sense, right? Like you learn to associate the place or the sound or whatever that you pair with the painful stimulus as painful. And then, you know, when you go into the room at, or hear the sound or whatever, you know, you, you display fearful behavior or the rat displays fearful behavior, even, you know, without the shock being present, right? Because it's expecting the shock. Yep. Uh, so anyway, so we tried to do this with humans to do for a brain imaging study. So we would just show them like circles and triangles and squares and stuff. And some of them, you know, at the same time as seeing the, uh, item, you would get a, an electrical shock. But of course, the issue is it's hard to crank up a painful stimulus for humans enough that it hurts and is aversive, but not so much that it, you know, is dangerous in any way. So, you know, we'd give people these electric shocks and we'd ask them to turn it up to the point where, you know, it was painful. But of course, like people stop before it becomes excruciatingly painful. And they obviously also stop well before. I mean, I don't. I think it was not possible using the system we used to turn it up to the point where you could actually hurt yourself. So, you know, like a lot of things, like if if you, I don't know what the equivalent is, it's like you know somebody flicking your earlobe or something. Like it's yeah. painful, but it's painful in like a kind of annoying sense. Like, well, it's a static shock, right? I mean, it's it's a static shock. Yeah, exactly. Like, and if you're expecting it, it's not that bad, right? So anyway, the long and short of it is, we had a very hard time like fear conditioning people because I think you know. Even though people learned, some of them learned, you know, that the triangle predicted the shock or whatever, but they weren't exactly fearing it, right? They're just like, oh, that's going to be mildly annoying. So it's not exactly the same as when the rat goes into the room and gets the bejesus uh, shocked out of it. And, you know, like, it really does not like that, right? Well, I think it's probably the same, except the rat doesn't know that you're not allowed to kill it. Well, I guess, I mean, yes, it would be a little bit different, like, if you were allowed to just, you know, every time a person walked into like their, you know, living room, you know, they got a random, mildly strong electrical shock that would probably cause you to start avoiding your living room, or at least start looking around for why your living room keeps shocking you. But yeah, when you know what's coming, when you know you're in a scanner doing an experiment, it's not particularly fear inducing. Oh, so that's not the story I thought you were going to tell, actually. I, I think you were expecting me to tell the legend of the, um, the motion insane, control? Yes. <laughs> the, the insane uh, ethical review committee or uh, institutional review board, as we call them in the States. Uh, so I never got verification that this is true, but I was told there was a study at Yale where they also wanted to do electrical shock-based fear conditioning. Um, and this is a published paper. It's by Elizabeth uh, Phelps's lab, or by Elizabeth Phelps, I believe, when she was at Yale in someone else's lab, or, or thereabouts, but or maybe it was at NYU. I can't remember at what point in her career this was. But anyway, uh, she's a well-known studier of fear conditioning and fear in humans. And they wanted to do the study that was about fear anticipation. Uh, so the question was not like learning to actually fear the shock the way it was in this experiment I just described, but if you told people that they were going to get shocked, you know, scanning their brain with that anticipation in mind, to see, kind of compare it to the fear response you get when that when that fear is based on experience, right? So there's a difference between like going into a situation and not knowing you're going to get shocked, and then 
you know, you learn over several exposures that the triangle predicts the shock or whatever. Uh, then you learn to fear the triangle versus someone going into an experiment and say, someone tells you explicitly, hey, uh, we're going to show you some shapes. And uh, when you see the triangle, you might get an electrical shock, right? Yep. Uh, so they wanted to study the anticipation of fear in the absence of the actual fearful stimulus. And the key thing about this uh, experiment is that in order to measure that, you obviously don't actually have to ever shock someone. You just have to tell them there's a certain probability they're going to get a very painful electrical shock, you know, and then show them the triangle a few times. So in this study, they actually... Well, in fact, you don't want to give them the shock, right? Because you want them to stay right. as still as possible. Well, yes. And, and as soon as you have done the shock the first time, you turn it from a study of anticipatory fear into a study of fear based on actual experiment, experience, right? And I mean, still, you're going to be anticipating the fear when you see the triangle, but it's because you have a now like sort of a classically conditioned association with the, with the stimulus, right? So as soon as you actually deliver the shock, it kind of ruins the part of the experiment studying the, you know, purely information-based fear anticipation. So anyway, when they, the legend is, and I still don't know if this is really true, but the legend is when they applied for, you know, review of the ethics of this study, the uh, IRB got back to them and said, well, this, this is an okay study. You know, the shocks are all, the promised shocks or whatever, all within like normal limits for this kind of study. But we don't like the deception in this study because you tell people that you're going to shock them, but you never actually shock them. So we think in order for the study to be more ethically uh, okay, you need to actually shock the people. <laughs> you're being too nice to them. Well, exactly. They were more concerned about the lying than the uh, than the painful shock, apparently. So I'm told that, you know, in order to comply with the uh, IRB's requirements, they had to, like, you know, do the whole study and, you know, like, get to the very end of the experiment and get to the end of the scan, you know, and stop collecting data and so forth and then go, like, all right, so uh, here's your shock. And then zap them once and, <laughs> you know. But, of course, I imagine the participants' reaction to this was like, dude, why'd you do that? <laughs> We're legally required to make you hurt. Yes, exactly. Also, we just don't like you. Here's your legally mandated beating. Uh, so I, I've heard this told a couple of times, but I've never gone back to the source to find out if this is really true or if this is embellished. But it's a, uh, I mean, you've had experiences with institutional review boards. Oh, Lord. Yes. You know, where they do kind of, didn't you have one that, application that was rejected because people might get bored? Yes, they, they might become bored or suffer from dry, itchy red eyes. Right. So you do get some, like, paranoia. And it was like, dude, they're sitting in front of a computer, which they would be doing anyway because they're grad students. Exactly. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's a good contrast to, you know, at my former place of employment. We should mention this in podcast. I am now officially unemployed right now, but we'll get into that a bit more later. Send Johnson cash and, cash and booze. Yeah. Yeah, I, I will. I will perform complicated statistical analyses for food. Um, <laughs> I've actually been conditioned by graduate school to, uh, you know, to do that for free food. But yeah, I was on the ethics committee, or you know, our version of the IRB, and uh, you know, we tried to do it in a responsible manner. But I can tell you that, you know, over here in the slightly less developed world, people are much less paranoid about, you know, human subject uh, safety and so forth. I mean, not not to an extreme point like uh we're not exactly going mangala on anyone over here but you know certainly in the u.s and uk in some places like it's reached the point of mild paranoia in some cases that you're going to be mistreating the subjects there was actually a new york times thing about this so the guy who invented irbs like sort of intended them to be like you know your fellow scientist is being like dude 
that's that's kind of crossing the line. Yeah, and they sort of morphed into this like massive, you know, like bureaucratic apparatus. Yeah, which tends to happen over time with anything, right? With, with any sort of safety review type stuff. But I mean, I agree we shouldn't be torturing people, but sometimes it is a bit much. Well, exactly. It's like you probably don't actually need to decapitate these the subjects at the end of this fMRI experiment just to you know verify that you know their brains were intact or whatever. You know, you could probably let them live. Uh, that it's good that we prevent people from doing that, but it does get a bit ridiculous sometimes. Anyway. Okay, so before you bounce back to Feynman, can I pitch one of my other favorite papers? Sure. So this is, well, here, I'll let you guess the the, uh, location of the group at the end. But, uh, so they wanted to study fear, but in a sort of a naturally conditioned sort of way? I'm going to guess Germany. No, but wait till you hear hear the experiment. So they had subjects lying in a scanner, and a major thrust of the paper was the methods, which is they devised a device which on... Uh, you know, on some trials, could selectively lower a snake into the subject's face on a conveyor nice. belt. <laughs> I, I do remember this paper. I can't remember where it was from. Australia. I think. Well, but in Aust- Australia, it's like, oh, well, that's not even a big snake. <laughs> I wonder if that was like the... But I think they also picked the size of the snake on a per-subject basis. Nice. So it's very much like the um, snake fight portion of your PhD defense that we talked about in a previous episode. It is it. Oh, no, I take it back. They're from Israel. Oh, okay. Oh, I thought they were from Australia. Yeah, it would make it a better story. But uh, no, I'm sure in Australia they'd be like, oh, yeah, I shook one of those out of my boot this morning. Maybe that's why it wasn't. There was just no effect in Australian subjects. Yeah. Although I think probably Israel, I assume they have their fair share of scorpions and snakes. And well, I mean, if you believe the Bible, some of them talk. So, uh, yeah, but the, the I think the snakes, you know, only come on certain days when the pharaoh's being uppity. Oh, that's true. Yes. Yeah, that's particularly fearful, I guess, if you know that in 24 hours your firstborn son is going to die if you don't smear the right kind of blood on your doorframe. But, uh... Also, I should add that there... Oh, no, sorry. The, the size of the snake wasn't manipulated, but how close you could slide it towards, your, towards oh, you away right. from you. And there's a video, which we'll put on the website, where you can watch the subject being tormented with a snake. Nice. This reminds me, I think my mom told me about a, I think, I think it was my mom told me about a psychology study that she participated in, in college. I'll look at the video uh, offline, I guess, where, you know, they wanted people who were afraid of snakes, which I think most people are, you know, somewhat afraid of snakes, right? I hate them. Yeah. Do you really, or are you just saying that? No, I do. I mean, I wouldn't like wet myself, but I would not hang out near a snake for any longer than necessary. (laughs) Okay, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm sort of in, but I'm I think probably around the population mean. Insofar as like, if I encounter one in the wild, I will certainly avoid it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would go to the snake house of the zoo. Yeah, but if someone has like, like pet ball python out, like, and so it's like, here, pet my snake, I'd be like, all right, I guess. By the way, did you see that two children in Canada were eaten by a snake? <laughs> no, that's kind of terrible. But in Canada. <laughs> um, we shouldn't. We I, I guess we shouldn't laugh about this because. It's Children kind of, got eaten, but... Um, I do feel kind of bad, but it is kind of hilarious. Yeah, we might have to cut this out of the podcast and so we don't reveal what psychopaths we actually are. It was on the BBC, you can laugh. Uh, it escaped from a pet shop and then climbed through the heating ducts and then it like fell through the seedling and landed on one of the kids and then ate it. Wow. It was like 16 or 17 feet long. If you didn't have a snake phobia before, uh, now you do, I guess. Kids should really have learned parcel talk. Parcel talk. <laughs> Oh, that's horrible. I really think we should learn that instead of French here. You know, just saying. Parcel tongue, yeah. Yeah, instead of French. But, um... Anyways. 
the the study that my mom I believe participated in, you know, they were like, all right, we need the people with fear of uh, snakes, and I, I think the first phase of it was she goes into this room, they've got like a little, you know, harmless snake, like a ball python or something in a cage. And they're like, all right, well, we know that you're afraid of snakes, but, you know, the first part of this is we have to see, you know, like how long it takes you to like touch the snake when we ask you to. So, you know, come up to the, uh, come up to the cage and, you know, touch the snake. And she was like, you know, not wanting to do it, obviously, but, you know, did what most people do, which is kind of like, you know, stretch out the hand and just kind of barely like put one finger on the snake and then go, okay, okay, okay. And they're like, yeah, all right, we can't use you for this study because a person with a real fear of snakes wouldn't have even done that. And she was like, what? So, and you know, they basically, like, excluded her from the study, and she went on her way and had to touch the snake for nothing. <laughs> I, I, I hate to contradict you, but uh, from my personal experience, your mother is not that afraid of snakes. Boo. Well, that's more like a worm, really, isn't it? Speak for yourself. <laughs> it's like a 16-foot python. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so... Uh, That's a good segue back to Feynman. Feynman. <laughs> yeah, and a fine man you are. Uh, but anyway... Uh, so anyway, so uh, before I get back into the main Feynman story, he also tells this great uh, aside, you know, in the, in the vein of, like, doing looking stupid, testing your personal pet theories. Uh, he says, The other guys at the graduate college were used to me looking like an idiot. On another occasion, for example, a guy came into my room and found me in a chair wearing my heavy sheepskin coat, leaning out of the wide open window in the dead of winter, holding a pot in one hand and stirring with the other. I shouted, don't bother me, don't bother me. I was stirring jello and watching it closely. I had gotten curious as to whether jello would coagulate in the cold if you kept it moving all the time. So this is actually a lot like your story, only he's doing it with cold jello and you're doing it with uh, hot, hot boiling or <laughs> hot water, yeah. Um, which he never, he didn't tell me what the answer was. I think the jello will still coagulate if you... Uh, keep stirring it in the cold, but uh, he didn't actually give the answer to that one. Actually, I don't know. Well, right, because it, it would be like most things that, you know, like you've stirred something while it thickens, right? Like, it just gets harder and harder to stir eventually. Um, so I imagine it's like that. Well, I'll be out my balcony this winter with a pot of jello. Well, exactly. Like, you can replicate the Feynman experiment, because he didn't actually give us the result. I assume that's what he got the Nobel Prize for? Uh, yes, I think it's pretty much that. And, and his uh, counting and his head studies, which I will now finish talking about. So anyway, he's doing all these like self-experimentation things to see like what affects the heart, the rate of the counting. Uh, so heart rate didn't have any effect. Uh, he figures temperature doesn't have any effect either, or at least like skin temperature, because obviously you know you run up and down, you get really sweaty, but it doesn't actually affect your core temperature. But anyway, he couldn't find anything that affected his rate of counting. And then he goes on to say like he just started doing this all the time. Like whenever he was you know doing something, he'd be counting in his head and timing himself. So he says. For instance, when I put out the laundry, I had to fill out a form saying how many shirts I had, how many pants, and so on. I found, found I could write down three in front of pants or four in front of shirts while I was counting myself, but I couldn't count my socks. There are too many of them. I'm already using my quote-unquote counting machine, 36, 37, 38, and here are all these socks in front of me, 39, 40, 41. How do I count the socks? Which I thought was super cool in a way, right? Because it gets into this whole thing of how we've got this one uh, working memory system that can track about three to four items, right? visually speaking, but, you know, if you go above that limit of how many items you can track, then you need to use more explicit strategies like verbal counting and so forth to uh, to support it. You can't track more than three or four items, and these two are independent of each other, right? So this is fine when basically discovering, like, Baddeley's theory of working memory and the separate phonological loop and uh, visual-spatial sketch pad and so forth just by, like, doing his little counting experiment. By doing while. his laundry. Damn. By doing his laundry, which is, I mean... 
I think when he was doing this, well, actually, when he was doing this, I guess this was before, like, most modern theories of working memory by a few years. So I'm excited when I discover 10 bucks doing my laundry in a pocket, but... Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I think this is, like, probably psychologists at the time he was doing this kind of knew this stuff to some extent, but uh, it is just kind of cool to see, like, these well-known uh, theories kind of illustrated in what Feynman was doing just while he was, like, screwing around. And then he, go, he goes on. It gets deeper. He goes on to say, like, well, I did find, because, of course, he didn't stop there. He says, I found I could arrange them in geometrical patterns, like a square. I could group them in groups of, you know, uh, three and, you know, group those into groups of three. He found that he could uh, count the lines in a newspaper article while he was doing this counting game by grouping the lines in the newspaper into patterns of three, three, and three till you get to ten. Then three of those patterns, three of those patterns, and three of those patterns till you get a hundred um, and so forth. And he could do the counting and say things like, all right, I have counted up to 60 and there are 113 lines in this newspaper article, which again is sort of getting into the working memory idea that you can, you can group things, right? You can group your, you may have a limit of three to four things, but if you can group those three to four things into one thing and then, you know, group those two, three groups of three or four of those and so forth, you can actually remember much more than three or four items, right? Which again, is sort of, uh, Finally, being a little bit prescient with how uh, working memory works. Cool. So that's cool. And then, I not to like belabor this, but like he goes on and on. He goes talking about like how he can't do this when he is. Um, well, he said that he could do it when he was typing, as long as like the words were not too difficult. But if he had to like stop to like read the word out loud to himself instead of just sort of like mindlessly copying, it interrupted his counting. So anyway, the next morning at breakfast, he says uh, after doing some of this. He starts talking to a guy named John Tukey. The John Tukey? Yes, the John Tukey, who he apparently was in graduate school with at uh, Princeton, I think, right? So so what do you know about John Tukey? Because I was surprised at how cool John Tukey was when I looked him up. He did, like, everything. There's only, like, five statisticians. Well, I, you know, I keep looking at these statisticians that I know mainly. Like, he's known for things like uh, Tukey's honestly significant, or honestly significant difference. That's what it stands for, right? The, the HSD, yeah. Certain statistical tests and... Uh, didn't he invent the box plot, too? He invented the box plot. And didn't he do... Was he... He also had an FFT algorithm, I think. But it's like a weird one from... Exactly. You know, back in the day. Yeah, he had a, he had an algorithm for doing fast Fourier transforms. Uh, so a lot of the stuff I didn't know about him, you apparently knew more about him than I did. And did he invent the jackknife? Or partially invent the jackknife? I think he was associated with... Uh, yes, in... Let's see, I think that's in his Wikipedia article. Yep, uh, he contributed significantly to what is today known as jackknife estimation, uh, invented the box plot, like you said. So he did all this cool statistical stuff, and also is possibly credited with coining the word uh, bit. Oh, with Shannon, because Shannon had gnats initially, because he wanted to do natural logs. Oh, interesting. But, you know, it's annoying as hell for hardware. Yeah, so uh, Tukey, while working with John von... Well, apparently Tukey was working with John von Neumann on early computer designs, and introduced the word bit as a contraction of binary digit, at least according to uh, to Wikipedia. And uh, may also, it's a little bit ambiguous that he may he may have the first usage of the word software in any uh, in any like published work. So he's he's kind of a badass in like statistical and uh, computer science and scientific history in general. And I didn't know that he did all the stuff because I mainly knew him from the statistical tests that bear his name, but. He's kind of a cool dude. 
Yeah, seriously, there are like ten statisticians. There's Fisher, Box, Cox. Pearson, yeah. Pearson. And, uh, uh, it's like about it. Yeah, and a lot of them were like surprisingly cool dudes um, for people that you mostly associate with boring like statistical tests and stuff. But Oh, whatever. Statistics is awesome. I went, uh, Paul Meyer. Uh, Paul Meyer was his grad student. Okay. As was Kai Lei Chung. Uh, there's also, by the way... A great quote. I, well, it's not that great of a quote, but I, I agree with the sentiment. In Wikipedia, he says, There is no data that can be displayed in a pie chart that cannot be displayed better in some other type of chart, which I just thought was a nicely snarky comment for a statistician. I think they are also all really snarky. Yeah. And this leads me to, by the way, indicate that the one exception... Well, you know what the one exception is to that rule, right? To which rule? The pie chart? The pie chart rule. Would it be our pie pie? pie? Yes, our... our our long dreamed of recipe that we've never actually implemented where we want to make a, a pie that is a pie chart of its own contents. So, you know, a pie that represents the fact that it is 33% apple, 33% cherry and 33% whatever. This will happen. We will still make that pie one day. We just need to figure out how to make dividers between the sections. Oh, I think I have that sorted out. I guess people make open faced pies like, uh, like topless pies, right? Fairly often. That That's yes. <laughs> Yeah, either that or you could just... I, I'll send you some drawings. I have a plan. Okay. You've been working up... You've been taking your CAD program and uh, making some models. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to take it down to the shop and be like, I need this fab out of titanium. It's for an experiment. Technically yes. true. Um, you could probably, like, refashion one of those. I was actually thinking just a piece of heavy aluminum. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure you could, like... Alternately, we just make the filling really thick, and I think it'll just sort of oppose itself. Yeah, because I think you would want to make the dividers out of crust, right? But you would yeah. obviously need to shape that crust around something. Well, what I was thinking you was doing is you could blind, you could bake it. Because a lot of times yeah. you bake the crust beforehand anyway. Oh, and insert crust dividers? Yeah. Well, wait a minute, but how do you keep the stuff from running into each other while baking? No, no, you bake the crust by itself initially for like a couple minutes. So oh, it doesn't get all soggy once it's filled. And then insert the pie and then rebake, yeah. Yep. All right, well. When you when you're back in the the appropriate hemisphere, we will. All right, we will we will do some pie baking. Anyway, back to Feynman. Yes. So so Feynman starts talking to Tukey, and uh, Feynman says, "I can do all these things while I count to myself, but the only thing I can't do while count to myself was talk." Right. So this is, uh, you know, anything where he had to stop and talk to himself or talk out loud, he couldn't do his counting at a constant rate thing. Which again, you know, gets into this working memory idea that you have one like a uh, phonological loop that you can use to supplement your working memory, but you can't kind of like, you know what I mean? You can't like count upwards while doing some other verbal task because uh, the two interfere with each other. Um, and this, this is like a staple of, of like working memory experiments, right? In fact, we talked about this on our first or second episode. Oh, did we? Well, the fact that the 10, the seven plus or minus three is only for English because of the number of phonemes. Oh, right. Yeah, and I mean, it's a it's a staple of, like, a lot of cognitive experiments where, like, you test if two cognitive processes are independent of each other or depend on shared resources by seeing if doing two at once interferes with each other, right? So generally speaking, uh, if you try to do a more visual working memory task while, like, counting to yourself or repeating the same word over and over again or something like that, they don't interfere with each, each other very much. But if you try to do verbal working memory while saying the same word to yourself over and over again or something like that, uh, it interferes with the with the memory. Anyway, so Feynman's saying, like, I can count to myself, but I can't do it while talking. And it says one of the guys, a fellow named John Tukey, he just throws this out there, 
says, well, I don't believe that you can read because because Feynman said he could read while doing this. Right. He could count newspaper lines. And uh, and I don't see why you can't talk. So Tuki says, I bet I can talk while counting to myself and I'll bet that you can't read. So Feynman gives a demonstration of reading a book while counting to himself. And, you know, he counts up to 60 and says, all right, now. And it took him 48 seconds, like it always does. And then he, you know, tells them what he had read. So he verifies that he can do it while reading the book. Uh, this amazes Tukey. But then Tukey amazes Feynman by saying, you know, he starts talking. Mary had a little lamb. I can say whatever I want to. Blah, 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 blah. And then finally says, okay. And he himself, you know, had hit his standard time for counting to 60 or whatever while talking, which is what Feynman could not do. Anyway, so... It says, we talked about it for a while and we discovered something. It turns out that Tukey was counting in a different way. He was visualizing a tape with numbers on it going by. So while he was saying Mary was a little lamb and so forth, he would watch this like sliding tape in his mind going by and waiting for it to get to 60 seconds or whatever, right? So it's just, or you, you could get the same thing by visualizing a clock, you know, hand going around, right? So, you know, Feynman was counting with his inner voice to himself, uh, but Tukey was like using his basically his visual imagery or his visual working memory to do it. So that kind of, uh, again, explains why like Feynman's, you know, talking was interfering with his working memory, but Tukey's wasn't because Tukey was figured out a way to do the same counting with a relatively independent working memory system. So he goes on to talk about this a bit more. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I just thought that was like, he goes through, so it's worth reading, especially if you, um, do any research in like working memory or attention or so forth. Cause he basically like in this like five page article goes through with the way he writes it. He clearly has no idea that there's like actual research on this. And you know, there's been a lot more since. So, I mean, he's a little bit early on this from uh, when this was happening in his life. Right. Cause this would have been in like the forties or fifties or something. And he just kind of like in a very casual sense delineates a lot of the, uh, you know, key features of like contemporary working memory uh, theory. So, and and coupled with this this idea that I I like to harp on all the time is like, well, if you want to test people's abilities, right? If you want to do a psychology experiment, you have to constrain their strategies in a way to make sure they're all doing it the same way, right? Because if you told people just to count to themselves uh, while doing some other task, you know, and you're looking at how these things interfere with each other, you better tell them either to count to yourself verbally or to visualize something or whatever, or you're going to get different results, right? So, like, it's a good illustration of this principle that, you know, it's hard to generalize about cognitive theories and so forth without without really, like, laying down to people the, the algorithm they should use for their thinking, because oftentimes people come up with different algorithms for doing the same task, right? Yeah. Okay, I guess that's the flip side of what I think, is that there's lots of cool individual different stuff that is tricky to study, because you don't have the N. Right, I think it's cool... But, you know, it, it gets into this whole idea, you know, I mean, this is why I like to study very simple cognitive processes, right? Because if you study working memory with one of these more, you know, if you just tell people like, oh, we're studying working memory, and we're going to give you these 10 things to hold in mind, um, but you don't tell them how to maintain them. I mean, you can make some, you can look at the data and make some generalizations about what people are doing. Like there's a famous, uh, you know, one of the famous working memory papers is Sternberg, high-speed scanning and working memory, where he basically delineates a theory based on reaction times of, like, how he thinks people keep items active in working memory by, like, scanning linearly through them, right? And you can sort of deduce this by the pattern of reaction times. But it does presuppose that everybody's doing this the same way, and that they are kind of, like, verbally looping through these items, or somehow mentally looping through items, right? You know, whereas other people might 
come, you know, certain people, especially that have better, like sort of self-training as to how to think and remember stuff might be doing something like, oh, visualizing a room and like sweeping their eyes around the room or, you know, who knows. But anyway, yeah, I mean, there's flip sides, right? Like, A, it's cool to study how people come up with different strategies for things. But B, if you're trying to like come up with a theory of how process X works, you know, you might need to define, you know what I mean? If you give somebody a cognitive task, you really need to constrain how they do that task if it's not perfectly constrained. So anyway, I thought that was a super cool little anecdote where like, it just kept blowing my mind how much he was like, and then I sort of figured it might be like this. And I'm like, yes, that's how it works. Why didn't you publish? (sighs) Uh, That is kind of awesome. Should I, can I show my other favorite ridiculous paper here? Sure. So it's also a, a mental sort of timing paper. So you know how people yeah. say during accidents, time slows down, and they you know like they saw the car coming. Oh, and they like, I just had a giant rant about this on Reddit, which maybe I will link to. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Well, so yes. So people say that time slows down, and you know they could they could like see everything on the car before they you know shoved grandma out of the way or whatever. Yep. So to test whether this, there's some sort of actual perceptual correlate of stress that affects your yep. timing, they took people to an amusement park. And they had they strapped these like things on their wrists that flash numbers at high speeds, so it it flashed back and forth between two different numbers like at above the uh, flicker fusion rate, right? So you don't see yeah. like the eight and the two, you see like this blurred mess. So they're looking at this like on the ground, you know, they adjust it so it's going fast enough that it's hard to read, and then they take them up onto like a bungee jumping thing, <laughs> uh, strap them in, and shove them off while they're trying to look at the wristwatch. And it turns out you can't see it. You can't see anything. But they had on their lab webpage, I can't find it now, but they had a YouTube video of the experiment. And it's just these people, like, bungee jumping. I've, I've got a link, yeah. It, there's a BBC documentary on it. Is it. Does it have those subjects, like, hitting the net and smacking themselves in the face? Um, I'm not sure if it's got that bit, but uh, I do have <laughs> Oh, it's <was> hilarious. <laughs> you just see person after person go over the side, and then when they hit the bottom... Their wrist comes up and they just punch themselves in the face. <laughs> That's pretty funny. If you got to get a null result, it needs to be like good and slapsticky. Well, yeah. The reason um, – so, so yeah, so I, you didn't say this yet, but right. So they found out that um, unfortunately people were not any better at reading this fast-moving display while bungee jumping. So it turns out that time does not actually slow down when you're freaking out about the bungee jump. Yep. Or um, nope. Yes. It doesn't. Yeah. Whatever the correct answer to that is. But the thing I got into a little bit of an argument on Reddit about is apparently, like, at least for – maybe they filmed this multiple times, but for the one documentary they had – or this BBC segment or whatever it was, they had apparently, like, talked about this when it was in the very early stages of it. And for the first one or two people, it kind of looked like it might be working. And so, like, people were like, "You this totally time slows down. And I was like, actually, I found the paper. And no, they found a completely null result, and people were no faster. So – um, I mean, it's a cool experiment either way, but it certainly would be cooler if it had been a positive result. Yeah, but at least it ends in auto face punching. Yeah. So yeah, I'll try to um, link these videos, or maybe we can find the funnier version if this is not the actual video, or the same video you were referring to. Okay, so we're at about an hour and a half of recording time. Wait, 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 one more thing. This is a total throwaway, but did you notice the end of your Feynman thing? It says it is synesthetic. Oh, I forgot about that. Yes, that was like the capper to the whole thing that blew my mind. And he, at the very end, what, do you have it up? Can you read the I do. bit about that? So he says, I often th- so he talks a little about the general moral of the, 
the story, which is, you know, people think about things different ways, and you should try to imagine things differently. Yep. He says, I often think about that, especially when I'm teaching some esoteric techniques, just integrating vessel functions. When I see equations, I see the letters in color. I don't know why. And as I'm talking, I see vague pictures of vessel functions from Jank and er, Erm's book, with the light tan J's, slightly bluish, uh, violet bluish N's, and dark brown X's flying around. And I wonder what the hell it must look like to the students. Yeah, that that was sorry. That was like actually the um, that was, that was like the, the icing on the cake for me. Yeah, and I I forgot to mention it. But yeah, that that blew my mind is that he just cycled through this whole like condensed uh, layman's history of working memory research, and at the end he's like, oh, and by the way, I'm synesthetic. Which I, we haven't talked about synesthesia on here, but um, maybe we can interview one of our friends who's an expert on this at one point. For people who don't know what it is, it's well, actually, how would you describe it? It's sort of what's the word, like crossover or um, cross-wiring of different sensory modalities usually. So there are a bunch of different types of synesthesia. The the most common one is the one Feynman described, which is uh, color grapheme synesthesia, which is like if you see a bunch of, if you see stuff printed in like regular black text on white paper, different characters, letters or numbers or whatever, actually appear to you to have different colors. And, you know, I don't have synesthesia, and I assume you don't either, right? Not really. No. But, you know, these people apparently have a way of telling that, like, it's actually black text, right? They can distinguish actual black text from, like, true colored text. Oh, yeah, their vision isn't messed up at, at all. Not exactly, but, I mean, it is a—at the same time, it is a perceptual thing, and they've shown this in various ways. But it's like an overlay, right? It's sort of like an overlay on the, the real world. Or like an aura or something, yeah. Um, so it's it's like a, they can sort of separately perceive that it is actually black, but it looks, you know, like the A's look blue and so forth. And you saw the, did you see the article that our guest co-host Laurie Skelly posted about the Fisher-Price uh, alphabet set? No. Does that, like, predict the color synesthesia? Well, apparently, you know, so one question is, like, what, what causes this? Well, the big question is what causes this, right? But, uh, yeah, it, did you have this, like, the standard, like, magnetic letter set, the Fisher-Price magnetic letter set, where, like, all the letters are different colors? Of course. Okay. So, apparently, there was a paper, and I'm probably not going to be able to find this online, but... Oh, I bet I could, actually. I could at least find the blog version of it. Hang on a second. Oh, it's on the... Yeah, there's a report of this on Neurocritic, with a good photo of the Fisher-Price uh, letter set, where, you know, but it's basically like, you know, the A is red, and the B is orange, and the C is yellow, and so forth. And they basically did a study of a bunch of synesthetes, and they found that, yes, above chance, people that grew up in the Fisher-Price alphabet toy era, uh, they found a bunch of people that were, I mean, not everyone, but a bunch of people that were synesthetes that their letter color associations matched up surprisingly well to the uh, to the Fisher-Price colors. So apparently they imprinted on these colors when they became synesthetic, and, you know, the colors of the actual letters became the colors that they associate with, uh, with each, with each uh, grapheme. So here's an interesting thing to ponder. I wonder what kind of synesthesia Feynman had, right? Because there's also a numerical sort of version where you associate certain numbers with colors. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like color grapheme, but I think people can have it separately for letters and numbers. Like, I think some people only have it for numbers and some people only have it for letters. Some people definitely only have it for numbers. Yeah. And they might only, you mean they have it for like conceptual numbers as well as like printed numbers. Well, that's what I was wondering. If, if you're a number only synesthete, but also like a say, Richard Feynman, do you yeah. see, like, 10x in color? It's We need to interview... If you're an actual synesthete, please email us. We should ask Kat. Yeah, well, I was going to say, we should interview our friend Kat Mulvena, who is a, uh, does some research on synesthesia, but it's a super cool area. 
and I don't know enough about it. And and obviously, like it's a little hard to describe if you don't have it yourself. It doesn't drive V4, which is weird. Yeah. Well, but the weird thing is, it, it does have some low level effects, right? So there's like the visual. Everyone, well, not everyone, but you obviously know, and uh, anyone in the psychology or neurosciences knows the visual pop out effect, where like it's very easy to find a red letter in a sea of green letters, right? It's very easy to find something that pops out on an individual feature like that. Whereas it would be very hard or relatively hard to find like a single L in a sea of T's if you're just just trying to distinguish based on like line patterns, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good description. Yeah, but a synesthete, if they saw different colors for L and T, would experience visual pop-out for an L and a C and a C of T's. So... Like they could do basically the, you know, the way it works is like, if you have this pop-out thing going on, like there's a red letter and a sea of green letters, you can answer, you know, like if you're given a search task where you have to find it, you can find it in basically zero time, right? Like as fast as you can possibly react. Yeah. Well, actually that turns out to be less true than everyone thinks. Okay. Fair enough. That's a topic for a whole different show though. Yeah. But, but basically you can respond very, very quickly Whereas, like, if it's a more complex feature that doesn't pop out like that, you know, you have to actually search, like, do the Where's Waldo thing, and your search time increases drastically the more items you have to search through to find it, right? So, synesthetes would have basically constant time in a case where uh, regular people would have a very, a much longer uh, linearly increasing search time uh, for things that they are synesthetic for. But also, can you flip that around, too? Oh, yeah, like, do they interfere like, like if so, you get color pop out, right? Yeah. But so, say I, I want you to find, say you see twos as blue and uh, fives as red. Yeah. Do you have a harder time finding like a red five? Because normally that's pop out. I think I think they've shown it both ways, and I I need I'll we'll link some more of this research in the show notes because I need to go back and find it. But yeah, I've seen various visual paradigms where they've done like synesthetic versions of it. Yeah, and I think it does interfere in all the ways that you typically think. Oh God, it's by Ramachandran. Oh, well, nah. um, <laughs> we're not going to link that one. Okay. But, uh, well, we've talked about that, that stuff. It's uh, some of it's good and some of it's a little sensationalistic, but the, yeah. the other cool thing is like, you know, there are other types of synesthesia. Like some people have like time color synesthesia. Have you heard of this? No. Like, uh, uh despite the subtitle of Kurt Vonnegut's novel, breakfast of champions, which was goodbye blue Monday. Like some people experience, you know, Monday is blue and Tuesday is green and Wednesday is yellow and Friday I'm in love and so forth. But, or, or they might experience like, you know, a certain month is a certain color or something like that. And the cool thing is that this actually aids memory, right? Like if you ask them like, oh, you know, what was the uh, date when you, you know, when such and such happened, like when you got in your car accident or, you know, you know, something that happened a long time ago or, or you know, when your friends got married. And instead of like most people that might go like, oh, I don't know, but it was like summer or something like that. They might be like, well, I'm not sure, but I know it was on a Tuesday because it was uh, a, an orange day. You know, or they might say like, oh, I definitely knew it was in October because it was yellow, you know, which is just insane. But it's actually a cue to memory uh, for people that have that kind of synesthesia. Huh. Oh, this sound shape. I guess I sort of do get that when I'm really tired. Weird. I'm a freak. What? What? What is it? Like, what do you mean? Well, just like if I'm, you know, actually, do you remember Winamp? <laughs> yeah. You remember how it had like those like visualizations when where you'd have like a sine wave that sort of moves around with the music and yeah yeah iTunes had the same thing and it was a very popular occupation for I think stoned college students to you know smoke up and then watch the visualizer for about six hours 
Yeah, if I'm like really tired and like falling asleep to music, I sometimes sort of like imagine that, I guess. Yeah. But I don't know if that's just Winamp exposure or synesthesia. Yeah, it's sort of like the Tetris effect. This is actually, you know, this has a name, right? It's called the Tetris effect, which I'm sure you experienced yes. playing Tetris as a child, which is if you're too exposed to a certain type of visual stimulus. Like, I remember this as a kid. Like, I would play Tetris for like seven hours on the Game Boy, and then I would go to read a book, and I would see like the Tetris shapes, you know, fitting into like the lines on the. Uh, on the on the book page. I've been doing some mental rotation stuff and I had the weirdest like Tetrisy spinny dream. Yeah. When I came home late and then just immediately went to sleep. Oh, it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's very strange, but I mean, this gets into, you know, there's there's a sort of open question as to how much of a spectrum this synesthesia thing is, right? But to a certain extent, I you know, people some people would say that we are all synesthetic in small ways, right? That there is crosstalk between our senses, right? Because I mean, huh. I saw a guy that did some research on this. So apparently it's like, prevalence is like 1 in 23. That's nuts. Oh, wow, that's much higher than I thought. <laughs> Which winnowed down the initial estimate of somewhere between 1 in 20 to 1 in 20,000. Yeah. That's, that's some crack estimating there. <laughs> it sort of depends. Uh, I mean, they've got questionnaires on this thing, right? And it sort of depends on where you set the threshold, but... I, I expect it's less for, like, super strong synesthetes, like, the kind that, like, get a little bit freaked out if they, like, because some people will say, like, if you see, let's say you normally see A is blue, but then you see an A printed in actual red, they're like, ah, I don't like that. That feels weird to me. So maybe not everyone has it as strong as those people. But, you know, like, we all use other sense modalities to describe things, right? Like, we might, def if I were to say to you, like, what a, Wait, a sound hang on one that sec. sounds There's like. There's drunken idiots outside. Okay. I'm just going to close the window so they're less annoying. Oh, I thought you were going to, like, let us all hear them. Oh, you can if you want. Can you hear them? Uh, I don't hear anything now. The only drunken idiots in here are us now. Ah, bright college days. Yeah. Plus, they can legally drink here, which is just a recipe oh, for Oh, that's true. At what, 18? Yep. Nice. But, you know, like, we all... If I were to describe a sound to you as being like rough, you know, or like uh, silky or something like that, you would know what that means, right? Like we often oh, yeah. describe voices in those tones. And the question is, you know, to what extent is that a metaphor and to what extent is that actual crossover between the senses? And you can get that for all kinds of things, right? You Like you might describe a sound as bright or I, I often hear it with like describing sound in terms of vision or touch, but I think it can go other ways as well. Oh, yeah. Well, taste too, right? You know, you say that, like, this wine is smooth and this one tastes, I don't know. Yeah. Rough, I guess. Yeah. Maybe I'll link to this guy's research if I can, like, find it again. But, you know, there's all these things built into language and there's certain axes of, like, big to little and sharp to dull and so forth that uh, sort of cross modalities in various ways. But, you know, it, it's a, right, it's an open question as to, like, whether it's the same thing that makes us all say that. Versus, you know, in a, just a stronger form with synesthetes, but it's a cool thing to look at. Yeah. There's also, do you know about the, this is in the Wikipedia article about synesthesia too. It's Kohler, where you give people some shapes and you're like, uh, there, there are two, you know, arbitrary shapes that don't really have a name. And you're like, all right, which one is uh, this? What is it? Like Kiki? Yeah, I can't remember. But Kiki, I think, is one of they're, them. They're nonsense words too. And you ask a, a very young child to uh, to tell you which one is which. Yeah, even like, I think it's like two or three-year-olds. Right, and they generally identify the one with like sharper edges as the kiki versus like the woo-boo or whatever it is. Yep. Yeah, so 
Oh, it's another Ramachandran paper. <laughs> I think that one. I think that one predates Ramachandran, though. I, I seem to remember that from a long time ago. I think I, I want to say that's like I read that in a Steve Pinker book, also. Well, there's no the Kohler is uh, forty-seven, but there's a Ramachandran replicate. Oh, okay. All right, so we should probably we should wrap this up because we are going to be short. Okay, so I guess uh, we do need to wrap it up now. Uh, hopefully, this one's a bit shorter than the previous ones, and we'll keep doing this in the future. And uh, I think in the next episode, we will we have like 100 topics still to cover, but I think we'll try to do maybe a bunch of them quickly rather than do uh, do just a few of them in depth like this time. <laughs> and totally at random. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, quite possibly. So I think, uh, you know, we have a giant compendium of topics to get through that maybe we'll just like run through next time. So just some uh, so general announcements. So first of all, if you want to... Uh, Follow the show notes for this episode. You get all the links we mentioned. Uh, that's sshmm.wordpress.com. That's our website. Uh, from there, you can also uh, get the link to iTunes so you could subscribe. You There's a link to donate some money if you want to buy us some better microphones or help with our bandwidth costs, uh, which we'd certainly appreciate. There's a link to the raw XML podcast feed if you want to use something other than iTunes to follow this podcast uh, and, and all kinds of good stuff. If you'd like to email us, you can email us at supersciencehappyhour at gmail.com. That's supersciencehappyhour all run together, one word. We would certainly appreciate it if you would tell other people about the podcast. We would love this to become our job, but in order to do that, we need like a crap load of listeners and sponsors and so forth. So, uh, you know, if every single person listening to this podcast right now told 10 of their friends about it, and then each of those people told 10 of their friends and so forth, you know, within... Within 10 or 12 iterations of that, we would have more listeners than atoms in the observable universe. So uh, yes. I highly recommend that you do that. Next week's topic, exponential growth. <laughs> yes. But no, seriously, uh, we would love if you uh, give us feedback, rated us on iTunes, told your friends, and so forth. Because uh, you know we want to keep growing this and having more guest stars on and uh, expanding our topic range and so forth. So uh, please, please let us know. And we're still in our uh, kind of... Nascent? Nascent? How do you pronounce that word? Nascent, phase? Viscount Johnson. (laughs) Yes, uh, sometimes I pronounce words wrong that I've only read. But, um, you know, we're in a bit of a transition, uh, especially right now, because I don't think I've officially announced this on the podcast yet, but I am, I've actually, I'm unemployed right now, as we alluded to earlier. I have uh, finished my job at uh, the university I was working at in Malaysia. I am actually in the process of moving back to the U.S., Going actually back to Krauss's and my PhD alma mater for a, a research gig, actually to my old lab. But uh, anyway, I'm going back to uh, the U.S. So there's going to be a there was a kind of quiet period while like we were both kind of wrapped up with other stuff. But there's probably going to be another kind of quiet period for a couple of weeks while I um, am moving back. So um, you may not hear from us. I'll, I'll be flying back on September 13th. So you may not hear from us till a week or two after that. But Soon after that, we should be hopefully podcasting more regularly and more briefly than previous episodes have been. So is that it? That's it. We hope you liked it. Yep, please tell your friends. And let us know Let us know what else you'd like to hear about. Or if you'd like to be on our show. We, we would like lots and lots of guests. Yes. Uh, so I think, you know, originally I had this whole scheme worked out in my head where we have a guest about every five episodes or something. But I think, I'm starting to think now that that's not enough and we should try to have somebody every, well, as often as possible, really, that we can work it out. Yeah. So probably not before I move back, but soon we will uh, start inviting our friends. And if you are not someone who knows us in real life, please let us know if you want to come on. And uh, during this little 
break period if there are not so many episodes coming out. Hopefully, I know some of the old episodes are long, but uh, they are very good episodes, if I do say so myself. Uh, so, you know, maybe take that time to uh, pretend it's two or three individual episodes and, uh, you know, spread out your listening time and listen to some of those longer episodes. And we promise that in the future, we'll try to keep it to between 60 and 90 minutes per episode. So uh, I think that's it, right? That should be it. All right. Thanks for listening. See you uh, in a few weeks. Send us email. We love you. Bye. I went to a Malaysian wedding on a Saturday. Really? Oh, yeah. You mentioned that. Uh, how was that? It was nice. It was not very Malaysian. What ethnicity Malaysian? Was it like Chinese uh, ethnicity Malaysian or what? Um, certainly not Muslim. So Okay. The, the people appeared... Uh, you know, they still use the word Oriental over here, which still, like, strikes me as racist, but they're cool with it here. Well, I mean, if they're cool with it, I mean, who am I to complain? Well, I mean, it does just mean Eastern, right? Like, it, it basically means East Asian, but it distinguishes, like, East from South Asian and so forth. Well, his name was Yang, like Y-A-E-N-G. Okay, sounds Chinese-ish. Yeah, I mean, he didn't look like like a postdoc Chinese. <laughs> that's going in the uh the uh afterwards uh whatever you call them the bloopers and such <laughs> so we have a crap load of stuff to before we kick this off can i take a one second break and grab my ipad so i can sure things? go ahead yep all right i would put on hold music but i don't have any at the Copa, Copa Cabana, the hottest spot north of Havana. At the Copa, Copa Cabana. <laughs> 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 Uh yes, I we we both entertained for the whole music, I think. Oh, so I have a question for you that probably shouldn't go in the podcast. Yeah. So that the item you received as a going away present was that a knit penis? Oh, um well, it's supposed to be a brain, but it came out looking like uh yeah, kind of let's see, do I have it somewhere nearby? Oh, I see. Yeah, if you rotate the if you rotate it ninety degrees, it definitely looks like a brain. Yeah, it's just that the um, cerebellum it looks like a, the other brain. Well, I mean, yeah, exactly, um, the south south brain. But um, yeah, it was just a combination of the fact that the brain stem came out remarkably wang like, and also the fact that the cerebellum has the perfect like shape and texture of a scrotum. So when I pulled it out of the the pa- the bag as you know of my going away presents. Um, I I pulled it out the wrong way and everyone was like, "Whoa, what the hell is that?" <laughs> if you want me to do it, no, that's fine. Fuck it for now. Okay, that's what's gonna say on my tombstone. <laughs> exactly. Do you guys do Ichi? Uh, we have Meg. Oh, ooh, that's cool. We actually have simultaneous EG and damn it, uh... Meg. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, Meg. <laughs> Um, yeah. The Meg is huge. <laughs> is is the Meg ugly? 
Fairly. Okay. It's actually very sci-fi-y looking, like much more than anything else we actually do. In 20 years, is the Meg going to become Ron? <laughs> we should, you know, if, to go if in. we had unlimited time and money, uh, that's totally the kind of thing I would do right after I, you know, I, I always had this dream of becoming, you know, a millionaire and donating enough money to Yale or, or some alma mater that they could build me a building, but it would have to be called the Johnson Building and it would have to be distinctly Wang-shaped. That was always my dream, you know, have the t- have like a, you know, the the tall eleven story building or whatever flanked by the two, the two kind of domed observatories or something. You wouldn't call it the Johnson erection. Well, well, it would be the erection of the Johnson facilities. Yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> you know, Howard Stern tried that, right? Tried what to to get a building built that was. So he was a he went to BU. Yeah, and apparently he like killed it. He had like a three nine when he graduated. Yeah, I know he's a, like a shockingly smart dude, but I, I didn't know. And that. he offered them a lot of money if they renamed the journal, journalism school the Howard Stern School of Journalism. Nice. <laughs> and they hemmed and hawed, and were just like, "Just like we can't do it. Like we're sorry, just we can't. Yeah. We still have the money." And he, and he said, "No." Yeah, no. I've always wanted to do some kind of like uh, horrible catch twenty two if if we ever become podcasting millionaires, but or any other kind of. I plan on making bequests for like bizarre and incredibly specific things. Yeah. Well, the, you know, but yeah, it would be funny to uh, to try to reinvent Meg and come up with a new acronym that makes it Ron, which about three people would get, I think, but uh, it would be funny. No, I think you underestimate the... Uh... <laughs> the family guy. The, the, the family guy the neuroscientist crossover, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess that's true. You know, my other thing is, I, th- I think I've said this before, I've, I've really always wanted to write a, a review paper called The ROI is Dead. Long live the ROI. Actually, no. Can, can I do that? Because it'll be awesome here. <laughs> I'm sure you could come up with a way of like making it sound. You know, the trick is to make it sound like the the review led the title and not the other way around. But I'm sure you could do it. Did I? Ever, oh, wait. So this part is going to go in the podcast. So I had a, a brief little project when I was at Yale where I took pictures yep. of funny and entertaining uh, scientific publications. Yeah, I vaguely. I mean, I I know that you put these on Facebook sometimes. Yeah. No, I I so I should make this a feature. So uh, here's here's the first one. This is the Journal of Psychohistory, taken directly from Foundation, and or nice. 1978, I think. Yeah, which was well after. Oh, it was right around that time, right? Well, no, Foundation was published in like the World War II era. Really? Yeah, he wrote it in like the 40s and early 50s, I think. So, I mean. Whether or not the person knew about those novels who founded the Journal of Psychohistory, but... Uh, How could you not? Wait. I guess they didn't have Google then. You're right. You possibly no. couldn't have. And I think uh, Asimov has... I mean, I've written, read a lot of his nonfiction. I think he wrote that, like, that was actually a word that had existed before he, quote-unquote, coined it for foundation. Hmm. It has an incredibly long Wikipedia article. Like, longer yeah, than actual it's... history. <laughs> you, you beat me to it by about... Uh, 15 seconds. Oh! Oh, 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 oh. This should go in there. Do you know who the term was coined by? Not, you mean before Asimov? Yeah. Or at least the idea? He got it from, I'm not entirely sure how to say his name. Kelet? Kate? Kate? Kelet? The the French, he was a Belgian sort of everything. He was an astronomer. He was a mathematician. But he yeah. was obsessed with normal distributions. 
Okay. And that's how he came up. That's how that's where BMI came from. There's like no biology underlying it. But he Under thought the body that, mass index. Yeah, he thought that you know height and weight should be normally distributed, except for the fact that they're you know like both strongly correlated with each other and with you know your age and sex. Well, right, yeah. So he took all these transforms. You know, he's like, well, we could do like density, right? So that'd be height over yeah uh, height over weight cubed, right? Or yeah, it wouldn't be weight. density, but it, well, I mean, there, that would be density. But I assume you'd really want like what is BM, BMI is weight over height squared, right, or something like that. Yep. Uh, BMI is mass in kilograms over height squared. Yeah. Okay. Right, which sort of makes sense. No, it doesn't. Not at all. Well, but well, I mean, it, it sort of does, but. There's the way he came up with it was he was trying to do some uh, he basically he's trying to do some regression and he's like I want this to be normally distributed, which is not actually necessary for regression, but that's another rant. Um, right. So he plotted you know like if you plot just say height, you get this bimodal distribution because you have men in one and women in the other. Right. So you say all right, well maybe it's like the ratio of height to weight, and that's still not quite normal. So he did all these different yeah. transforms and uh, weight over height squared turned out to be the most normally distributed. And so oh, that's what so he that's used. What, that's, ah, that's the, the entire genesis of BMI. I thought there was some better reason that... I mean, because, like, I, you know, I remember back before BMI came into vogue, you just talked about height-weight ratio. No, like, apparently but, the best predictor of, like, you dying from, you know, fatness is uh, waist-to-hip ratio. And he looked at that, but it, yeah. wasn't, it wasn't normally distributed, so he just punted on it and was like... Oh. That's super annoying. Who is this that you said was doing this? This is the, oh, the Belgian polymer of Adolf. What? That's, yeah. Here, I can send you a review about Cut this. It's probably like Cutelet or something like that. It's Yeah, that's, that looks about right. Oh, yeah, Cutelet. It's, Cutelet. it's kind of got the uh, IPA of it, yeah. There, there's a review for that rant. All right, cool. Um, but anyway, so he coined the term psychohistory? Or? Well, I guess it was his idea of using like, no. statistics to figure out the course of man. Ooh, theremin music here. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that he was... Okay, so he's a while ago, even though... Because BMI didn't really seem to be into vogue until, like, recently, but he came up no, with... No, I think it was just obesity has gotten more press. Maybe. He came up with it in, like, the 1800s, right? I, uh, well, he only lived... Yeah, he lived between 1796 and 1874, so... Yeah, so it'd be sometime in the 1800s, but... I thought I, you know, as a kid, I thought I remember hear, hearing people talk more about height-weight ratio, but that as a strict, like, ratio, not as a ratio of the height to the square. Hmm. I don't know. Or, uh-huh. sorry, the weight to the square. I don't know. Anyway, but maybe, you know, as a kid, I just didn't know about BMI. I don't know. All right. Well, anyway. All right. That was our little postscript for the day. You know anything about mental rotation? Uh, some. The standard... Issue amount, probably. What about mental rotation? I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around it. Ah, I was going to make that joke. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to use that when I give a talk. Oh, totally. Uh, that, that should go in the... That Maybe it can be our last little funny bit in the, uh, in the after dark. It is sort of amazing what people don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I don't... Like, the thing is, like... the Things like the Krieger's Court and stuff kind of stretch the limits of my linear algebra and so forth, but I... I get most of the points pretty well, but I realize that's still operating at a much higher level than most people ever get to. No, no, this is like, this is like, 
Though you really do have to correct for multiple comparisons. Oh, yeah. No, no, you don't have to divide the ANOVA p-value itself. Oh, Jesus. Just, do you want me to just write this for you? Just give it here. Give it here. Like, I'm no, not even on this paper, but I would like it to you're be. You're drooling all over it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know. Theo and I are submitting a grant because we're going to do micro-stimulation. At least, allegedly, I'm going to do micro-stimulation. Yeah. <laughs> you do micro-stimulation in the bedroom. <laughs> no, it's pretty macro. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna have to comb through like a lot of uh, After Dark now to find any funny bits. 